Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Tonight, we've got Dave Veronic, call sign Bio, on the program to talk about air combat maneuvering. Dave, how are you doing tonight? Eddie, I'm doing good. It sounds like we're going to uh, go back to the days when we both had 100% SA. Exactly. I, when, when my debriefs were correct, because I was giving them. So, yes. you know, there, there's no arguing. Well, the good news is we also have Brett on. Brett, it's good to have you on to talk a little bit of air combat stuff tonight. Hey, guys. Well, Dave, it's good to have you on, and uh, I will try to refer to you as bio throughout the evening. It's uh, sometimes hard for me to go back to my old uh, aviation habits, now that they've been beat out of me by the uh, the nice cultured world that says people should have proper first names. No, bio but, works for me. <laughs> well, good. Well, bio, tell us a little bit about, uh, about your career in the F-14, because a lot of people, they kind of show up and they assume that everybody goes and does the same thing, and they go fly a little bit, the, everybody gets to go be an instructor and gets to go do cool things and wear cool uh, weapon school patches but how'd you end up being a top gun instructor well that was uh, first off it was my dream from the time i was around uh, 10 11 years old to fly navy jet fighters i wanted to fly the incredible f8 crusader you but, are dating uh, yourself there <laughs> yep well this was in you know 1971 72 but uh it turns out my not only was my age against me but uh, my eyesight went bad, so I, I was going to be a Rio. Uh, I had to, that was my only choice. And uh, so when I got to Pensacola, that was my goal to be a an F-14 Rio. Uh, I made it. I was not the top of my class, but I was about uh, the one-third from the top. And my timing was good, so I went to F-14, the RAG at Miramar. Uh, in my first squadron, I, uh, I did pretty well. Um, but you know, there were a lot of talented Rios back then and, and in your community, Eddie, uh, the talented Wizzos and, and Brett, I know you guys, you know, I mean, there's, there's guys that are, uh, near the top and almost everything. And then there's other guys that are just, you know, getting by, although, you know, I don't know if Rangers have many guys <laughs> near <laughs> yeah, the bottom. I, I don't think there are many in Brett's field <laughs> like that. <laughs> I found myself in my uh, first F-14 squadron. There were, you know, there were a lot of uh, very talented Rios, and the um, the biggest key to becoming a Top Gun instructor is to go through the Top Gun school as a student. So I went through as a student when I was a junior officer, and I was uh, fortunate. I was uh, Rio. I was crewed with a, a very talented and a competitive pilot, and our wingmen were also good. And so uh, I did well when I went through the class. My pilot did well, and we actually were both invited to uh, be back as Top Gun instructors. And so here I am uh, five years after graduating from college, just to give people an idea of, of when the, these things happen. Uh, in August of 1984, I find myself as a brand new Top Gun instructor. And Eddie, I got to tell you, the, uh, the uh, drinking from the fire hose doesn't even begin to talk about what you experience as a new Top Gun instructor. I mean, you, <laughs> exactly. you were thrown in the deep end. But the other thing is, uh, and I was not that philos this philosophical at the time, but I'm thinking back and the other instructors did everything they could do to help you succeed. Now, 
They insisted that you meet the standards, but they did everything they could do to help you meet them. Oh, absolutely. I, I think one of the funniest things to me to this day is going through that first series of murder boards. And if people don't know what a murder board is, it is a practice lecture where you are literally murdered <laughs> by your peers afterward in their debriefs. And it was it was so funny to, as a subject matter expert, understand the material and still get skewered for adopting the previous briefer's uh, points, mannerisms, things that I had taken directly out of watching them give that lecture. And I'm like, I'm just trying to give the best subject matter expert lecture I can. <laughs> but they're really, they're trying to make you better. Yeah, that's funny. My first lecture that I gave at Top Gun was for the uh, fleet air superiority training, the FAST course. Right. So it was, uh, it was where F-14s and E-2s are out defending the carrier strike group from a Soviet bomber raid. And this was the first lecture I was assigned at Top Gun, and it was an information lecture. Mine was an information lecture. I just talked about Soviet bombers. I was taking over from an instructor who did a nice job with it. And so I did what you did. I adopted his information and everything, and I got a thumbs up. I mean, I basically got a thumbs up. But my second lecture was the F-14 tactical intercepts lecture. And when I was assigned that lecture, they said, you need to do this from scratch. Do not do what the previous instructor did. So that's there not was, fair. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> well, it needed that. So, I mean, the previous guy was a Rio who was uh, talented and did well, but it was time to take it to a different level. So. Right. Yeah, well, you know, the, the funny thing for me was armed reconnaissance and strike coordination and reconnaissance were, was my first SME subject that I took on. And fortunately, a, a good friend of mine who was uh, one of my mentors had had the class before. Uh, and so I could really draw from him. But it was funny to watch. I went through the first two murder boards. Everything was good. And, and it was good through the first six months of giving the class. And then I realized how many people had an axe to grind when we went to the first tactics review and people were rewriting the chapter uh, simply because they were senior instructors to me. And I had to go, wait a minute, I'm the SME here. And for the last six months, nobody said anything was wrong. <laughs> so it's always, it's funny to see the office politics that you get. Man, no kidding. Now I do remember, I mean, and we're not going to spend the next, uh, we're on for three hours tonight, right? We're not <laughs> exactly. going to spend the next four hours <laughs> Yeah, talking about being instructors. But I do remember the feeling I got once I qualified for each of those lectures and so it's like, okay, you've got the big load is done. And so for me, making, I mean, my feeling was making any changes and improvements was like, okay, I can do this because once you're at the baseline level, at just the, the level of uh, comfort and confidence and everything else, uh, I felt like making incremental changes was fairly simple after that. It was just a great feeling. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's that's really a segue into a little bit about why we're having this discussion. Because, you know, I realize a lot of people said, hey, you know, Doug, why don't you jump on there and we'll talk tactics and how, to, how air combat can play out in a variety of, uh, of miniatures-based board games. Uh, but I, I also find myself saying a little bit of, well, you know, that, that isn't where I draw my inspiration. It isn't where I, uh, that's not why I'm necessarily good at the game. It isn't because I know the rules or, or I've mastered how to move little plastic planes around. It's because I try to replicate all the, the discipline that we went through, this, the very disciplined ways of thinking, and especially with you bringing up uh, tactical intercepts. And, and <laughs> I think of trying to create uh, that series of, uh, of, of lecture and, and class from scratch. Um, it's, we, we'll have this mental image, no matter what we're doing, if, if we're 
we're playing a video game or if we're playing a board game uh, of what the bigger, wider world is and how the information we take and we build it into situational awareness. Because I think a lot of people, and I've seen it happen, and, and Brett will probably laugh because I've, I've uh, made this point with him before, they get caught in fighting one versus one. And they, they get caught with what is this individual airplane going to do to beat that airplane? Um, Brett, I don't know if that's been kind of your experience uh, playing Blood Red Skies sometimes. Oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. And, uh, you know, I lose I, I lose the ability to see the whole table, you know. And that's something I had a question about it. You know, you mentioned a little bit about the classroom setting and stuff. I wonder how tactics are described in a classroom setting. I mean, is there a certain method that uh, it's, you know, drawn or video sequence or something that helps explain like how things should be moving or how does that typically done? Maybe it's a simple question, but I can tell you how I did it. Uh, this was when I, I, I developed this new F 14 intercepts lecture at top gun, um, around from, you know, November 84 to January 85. I mean, I worked on it more than three months, but those were the key months. And the other thing is I was the point man. I had a, a lot of excellent input from other instructors uh, so I'm I'm not the uh, I did not do all the uh, brains of the thing, but my framework was the uh, air-to-air radar intercept, uh, and it was two F-14s versus an unknown number of um, of unknown aircraft, and for the purposes we you know we determined that they were hostile pretty soon because that makes it more exciting that way you can shoot missiles and all that, but our framework was. Um, uh, I guess whiteboard or, or in my series of slides, I stepped through the intercept in, uh, in mileage markers. I said, okay, initial detection, here's what you're going to do. And it was not only a Rio lecture, even though it was intercepts, but you know, I've got half the room is full of pilots and I'm telling them pilots, here's the formation you're going to fly. Here's where your lookout's going to be, et cetera. Rio's radar modes, communications, things like that. And and then I'd go, okay, initial detection, you can expect it at this range. Outside of, you know, 20 miles, you need to have this done. Outside of 15 miles, you need to have this done. And that was a framework I used. And uh, just to, to, uh, to talk about what uh, Doug said is the big picture. Uh, I would say, you know, 70% or more of my discussion was technical stuff in the cockpit or in the section, but underpinning it all and always reminding them that your mission, your risk, the tactical situation all had to come into play for all your decisions. Well, and I think bio will tell you is that there's also some things that you did as a a rote memorization series of steps because it was a how you would start an intercept or the things you would do at the at the start of a dogfight turning in to analyze your adversaries uh and and there were certain initial maneuvers and things that that people would do Brett and so that that makes it that gives you a framework to start your real time thinking and start your building of your essay uh and I know you know we we kind of had the same 
thought process, but on the air-to-ground side in armed reconnaissance, where much like Bio's talking about having certain ranges that he did things at, certain you know communication cadences, we would do the same thing approaching a target area. At a certain range, we'd look out, and you'd take a visual snapshot and go, okay, I see where the smoke is. I see the direction it's blowing. Okay, I don't see any SAM launches in, in the uh, target area. We're going to do this style of tactics. And then you would then step through how you searched for the enemy tanks or the enemy uh, convoys, and then how you'd attack them from very known points of departure until, of course, the enemy got, got a vote. And in air-to-ground, they'd shoot at you with a uh, surface-to-air missile. Air-to-air, they might take a defensive maneuver. They might fire air-to-air missiles. They might make you uh, knock you off your timeline. Um, but all those things at least gave you a point of departure that then your brain could say, I know that things are moving really fast, but I've also made the right response before, so I know which of these responses I'm going to choose. Does that kind of answer your question, Sound, Brett? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a sort of a decision matrix based on distance as you are closing with the target and you have certain, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I can visualize what you're saying. It's, I find it very interesting how you would teach others how to do these well, steps. And, and you've seen, you've that. seen me use it against you a number of times on the board. And, uh, I, I laugh because Roger tried to use it in some of the Vietnam play testing. Uh, but there's, there's certain initial ways that I'll always start a blood red skies game. And you've seen me go to bracket you. You've seen me use the board edge to force you, you know, all of your, uh, ME one Oh nines to one side of my flight. Uh, so that I'm looking everybody at the same side of the cockpit and bio is probably rolling his eyes here going, I remember all these no, monsters. <laughs> Isolate the threat sector. <laughs> exactly. So, so those are things that were that were beat into me by the same kind of instructors um, that doing the the same kind of things. They said, you know, make sure you've isolated the threat sector. It's on one side of your canopy. Everybody's turning in the same direction and turning towards fight center. Those kind of things. It doesn't matter whether you're flying a a real aircraft out there or you're simulating it on the board or simulating with a computer game. Those principles still apply because they help they help cage your SA. If I if I've got to in a board game, think about fighters on my left and my right, or, or bandits on my left and my right that I have to, you know, attack. It's a lot harder to make the right move than if all the bandits are on the right side. So, Doug, something else you said was uh, known points of departure, and that was exactly what I was had in mind uh, when I was thinking about what what Brett asked the first time. How do you present this? All of my lecture was a starting point, right? And <laughs> what was one that was one good thing that I thought about the the Top Gun uh, instructors and the Top Gun program is the ins all instructors are familiar with all the lectures. And when we went out there and flew, they would use flight events in the debrief to uh, reinforce the lectures and they'd use the lectures to make points uh, about the flights. And it's, it's especially when you're talking about, okay, you know, when to launch an AIM-7 or when to shoot an AIM-7 versus an AIM-9, what, missile to decide but as other things also uh you know what's your mission how what's your uh, the risk that you can accept do you decide to engage etc yeah absolutely and and that the, your your decision matrix of things that that are going to drive you to certain actions uh sometimes is at least you know my perspective is as former air crew gets really frustrating in some of these games because brett and i have talked about it sometimes these games will be everybody rolls around in a dogfight till all the airplanes are shot down uh and i think that's one of the good things that blood red skies as a game simulates a little bit differently is it kind of has the morale factor and you know you take enough gunshots on on a squadron of fighters uh and they go okay that's enough i think it's time to bug out <laughs> no one's been shot down but we've been pushed around a little bit 
So we used to have, you know, flights like that were a lot of fun. <laughs> but yeah, as long as you're the one it, doing the pushing, not being the pushy. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, you know. or else if you get kill removed real early on, and then you go, okay. I mean, in the, especially in the F five, we could go up at you know thirty five thousand or or above, and the fight is down at twenty. 20,000, 15,000. And so you'd go up at 35,000, roll inverted and just watch. Right, right. It was just great. I mean, you didn't want to be kill removed, but, you know, if you're dead, you might as well enjoy the the view for the next few minutes. Yeah, see, that's why we always had to, uh, during the WTI course, the weapons and tactics instructor course, you had to go shoot the low approach of shame because it was it was too easy for people to get killed, go hang out above the fight and have a, a good time waiting to regen. We used to make them fly back to MCAS Yuma, put their gear down, uh, oh, do God. the low approach, and, and then they could come back out and join us. So everybody standing around waiting to launch in wave two would see, you know, aircraft 404 fly by and they go, yep, Eddie must have gotten shot again. <laughs> So. Oh, that's good. That- that's good. See, we used to just uh, recycle. I think we would, f- I'm, I'm tapping my pen on my desk right now. Maybe you can hear that. But I think we would fly back to uh, a point, but we didn't make, we didn't go do the low approach back at Yuma. Gosh. Yeah. It was- the fight would be over by the time you came well, back out. And that was the nice thing is we had, uh, on the blue air side, we had enough fighters that we were rotating through there that it was in a sense a meat grinder. Um, but the, the poor guys that, uh, that did get killed, it was, uh, they were out of the fight for quite a while. And especially, um, by the time guys have gotten stacked up. And so there's guys coming off the tanker eager to get in the fight. And you're the, you're the poor guy coming back from kill removing and no one wants to put you back in the fight. <laughs> I think you guys, you guys did bigger events than we did. We did. We, well, and, and once again, it was the focus, the difference between a WTI course versus a top gun. I mean, our, our goal was integrating the Marine air ground task force. And so there was a lot to getting, uh, getting these really big packages, air to air packages together and, and doing some, some fun things, but well, and, and top gun was rather realistic, you know, as realistic as we could make it, but it was part task training. And when I went through, it was strictly air to air. They've, right. they've incorporated air to ground and they started out with air to ground. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was still challenging training. It gave guys a lot of skills. And uh, sometimes I overlook this uh, when I'm when I'm thinking back and talking about it is uh, the one one of the main goals was to give them the skills to go back and be a training officer at their squadron. Uh, and and, you know, guys did that to different degrees of success. Uh, right. But of course, you know, the the what people really liked, you know, the meat was the. 25 to 30 ACM engagements, uh, flights. Absolutely. And when I say 25 to 30 flights, you know, some of those would be two, three or four engagements, uh, depending on how fast it lasted. So you really got a good load of ACM when you went through the Top Gun class. Yeah. And I'm sure obviously, uh, some people got the extra reflies as well. That was, that was always something that wasn't available to a WTI course. We, we, didn't, <laughs> we didn't do reflies. Oh, when interesting. I was there. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, oh yeah. That, I talked to more recent Top Gun instructors, and they talk about reflies. Yeah. They talk about various <laughs> other things. They're like, what is this mercy called a refly? <laughs> well, and, you know, guys had the sense. Uh, guys, you know, I mean, we were starting to wish that we had those things, but they just had not been developed yet, the procedures. And the, and so we, you know, we pushed everybody through. Well, and I think it's a, it's a different world uh, asset-wise and – a number of squadrons wise than it used to be. And so the, the problem really is you, we spend so much time building prospective top gun graduates up 
within the fleet with just all the training and, and you sit there devoting so much time to him, you're like, man, I got to figure out pretty quick if this guy's going to hack it and can I get him enough reflies to get in that sight picture so that he can go back and teach everybody else or yeah. is it time for him to go sell shoes? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I don't know when the last time you were in the in the Marine Corps in the fleet was, but uh, but I left the Naval Aviation in 1998, and uh, and even by that time, and it's only gone more in this direction, more for the better direction today. But the Navy, I think, has done an excellent job of identifying. Uh, it's instructors, top gun instructors and weapons tactic instructors in the uh, squadron. And I just think naval aviation training has really made some uh, impressive advances uh, s since the way it was when I first joined the fleet in 1981. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's good. I mean, I'm impressed. A lot has changed. And I'll tell you, I think a lot of it is the, uh, the comfort level that, uh, people coming into aviation now have with technology and um and so when things change you know I, I often laugh that people are more used to their cell phone being upgraded than the aircraft and so when you come out and you tell them there's a new aircraft software they're like yeah no big deal i'll figure it out um whereas i know when, when, you, when you did that to us at the beginning of my career i'm like oh my god you moved three displays and changed two push tiles i'm gonna have to it's gonna take me hours to figure this all out you know and and to them it's not dude that way. you should have flown an airplane with a crt yeah no thanks no thanks my electronic jet was perfectly fine by me <laughs> Yeah, I want um, to hear more about the the, the toolbox you must well, yeah, have carried so, with you to work on those uh, green screens. Yeah, so, so that was Brett's comment. You know, he really one of the things he said was, "I I really want to understand because one of the things we've talked about as as the game system we work with with Blood Red Skies goes into the jet era and into more advanced radar equipped aircraft. You know, what is it like to sit back there with some of these displays and and steam gauges and things and trying to make sense while you're sitting in the back of an airplane? What's going on miles in front of you? Okay, when I was new in the uh, fleet, like I joined my first squadron in 1981, there were a couple of things that I recall, and this this helped, this shaped me, and it kind of gets into some things that we were talking earlier. A couple of things I recall is that the guys that seemed to be the, the most respected were the guys that could fix the AUG-9 when they're airborne, and the guys that could tune the dials in the back to get a good radar picture in pulse search over land. Oh which God, in the pulse August search. Nine, oh, yeah. that makes my head hurt. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, and, and if uh, people don't know what that is, it's just raw radar. So the main thing that you see is mountains and yeah. to, to pick out, you know, a couple of a fours and F fives in the mountainous terrain. I mean, if they're above you, it's no problem, but if they're level or down, it's a challenge. Uh, and so those two things, and it was it was very much of a technician. The technicians seemed to be most respected or the most awed, and so that I carried that with me as a, a new Rio. And it, and when I got to Top Gun, I was forced to think about what we talked earlier. What's your mission? What's the bigger picture? And I got some, and but this was when I'm a Top Gun instructor, so I got some good guidance. You know, bio. You need to get. The new, you know, you need to take your class to talk about this. What's the big picture? What are the external forces? And hopefully I developed, you know, I, I got that a little bit better when I went back to the fleet. Uh, and then when I was a Top Gun instructor, I saw some Rios come through as students. And I was just going like, man, these guys have the picture. This guy's great. And I'm going, well, I'm glad I'm already here because... 
Yeah, well, you know, the, the funny thing is how, how aircraft have evolved over time and crew duties in those have evolved. And we've alluded to it in a couple of the expansions uh, to the game that rather than in the World War II era where you have a pilot and a tail gunner who's really out there just trying to make sure you stay alive, you yeah. start uh, going into the, the true sing- single-seat radar fighters uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. Then you go to dedicated radar crewmen. Then all of a sudden it isn't, well, he's really not just here to you know, run the radar. He's here to make the airplane more effective. Um, and some of those those lessons learned where it wasn't necessarily just putting a expert radio or radar operator back there and a guy who might talk on the radio, but it was somebody that could actually feed the right amount of information to the pilot, keep lookout for threats uh, when the pilot got overtasked, and and build that situational awareness, which is kind of what I want to I want to drive towards a little bit here is that discussion of of what did you do as a Rio when you came to a multi-plane engagement, when two you know, F-14s passed with two F-5 aggressors? You know, what, what did you do in that kind of a situation? The easiest thing to say is what you don't do, and that is watch the guy that is in front of your plane that your pilot is attacking. Oh, but it's so cool to watch and, that guy because you're like that, that high-speed cheerleader in the back. Yeah, which is not at all what you're supposed to do. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... What, what I did was when we were in a multi-plane engagement, and, and I'm thinking back how confusing it was the very first, the first few times I did this, and then after a little bit of experience, how comfortable you get uh, keeping track of a wingman and, you know, three or five enemy out there. So what I did was I would, you look ahead and you see what your pilot is looking at. And, okay, you know, so for... You know, one-tenth of a second, you look ahead, and your brain can just process all this information. You look where your your pilot's head is looking. You can see the guy he's looking at. Okay, we know you know what that's going on. Then you spend the rest of your time going, okay, you know, our wingman is uh, down below us. He's chasing a guy. Pilot doesn't need to know that. There's another guy, you know, at, at my right 5 o'clock high, but he's, you know, 180 out. So he's no threat. Pilot doesn't need to know that. Check your airspeed, check your fuel, check your navigation. Because even though you're in the middle of a, a 2V unknown, if you spill out of the area or if you fly into Mexico, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, and I've, I've never been to Mexico flying down in the Yuma <laughs> Ranges. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, exactly. And, and so I just remember doing all those different things and, and trying to, I guess, make myself useful. And then the other thing is the F-14 had dogfight modes, uh, that the Rio activated. So the pilot had one dogfight mode, but it was not very useful and hardly anybody used it. And so the Rio had the most useful mode. And so the pilots would be pursuing a guy and he'd be going VSL, VSL. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you're sitting back there and, you know, if you're ahead of the game, you'll flip that little switch, you know, before he asked for it. Um, but well, it, it was well, just whatever needs to be done. Yeah, go ahead. As I say, let's let's talk a little bit about that. About you know, in the middle of a dogfight, while you are, let's say, you're looking out the left side, tracking the bandit that's now the next threat to you, while your pilot is fighting the current bandit, and he's looking, you know, in the forward half of it of the airframe, and he calls for a specific radar mode, and now you have to look back inside that cockpit if you haven't been flying with your hand on that switch the whole time. Which no, there you, there were some of those that we did. Yeah, <laughs> you know? but the other thing is after. Uh, and I remember this feeling. It was after only a few months after I got out of the rag. I did not have this feeling in the rag. But I remember once I got in the fleet after 
maybe three months, maybe more. I'm going, hey, I know where everything is. I don't really have to think when I want to do something. Right. I right. mean, I'm serious. It and and I'm saying this for you know your audience, your gamers, your friends who, or or people who look in the cockpit and they go, wow, it's so complicated. And that's what I thought the first time I looked at it too. But then after you get, you know, good training and some experience, it's like, no, this is where I live. This is where I work. This is what I do. Well, and I laugh because there's always workarounds, you know, talking to a lot of the, uh, the F4, uh, like the F4, F guys in the Air Force that, um, uh, or sorry, they were F4Es. Let me get that right. F4Es. And their, their Sidewinder switch was a small switch down there that was in a really inconvenient place to flip between each of the Sidewinder missiles individually. So how'd they fix it? They put six inches of rubber tubing on it. So that way they could, in the middle of a dogfight, reach over and flip it, you know? Right. Yeah, we did that to our VSL switch, yeah. which, was <laughs> our ra- which was our radar mode. Boy, I, I read about uh, a report about the F-106 Delta Dart, beautiful airplane, but it had terrible switchology. And this was the kind of thing that early in the Vietnam War, you know, right. the American fighters were going, you know, who the hell designed this? It <laughs> maybe, maybe if you're doing a 50 mile intercept on a bomber at 40,000 feet, it's doable. But if you're fighting multiple wily bogeys, yeah, it, at low it, altitude, it ain't going to work. Well, we've talked about it a lot. Is you look at like the old F-4B cockpit and you sit there and you go, how am I going to, in the middle of a dogfight, make sure that I'm selecting the right boresight mode and I'm going to select the correct missile and and do that while still maneuvering the airplane and jockeying the throttles and the stick and the rudders and everything yeah. else. You know, it's, it was not made by anyone that believed in ergonomics. Well, and, th- <laughs> and think about the single seat fighters. Oh, yeah. I, once again, I have no idea how anyone in an F-8 did anything without crashing. Because yeah. it's just it's amazing to me, um, you know what all what all they had to deal with. So so that's one of the things that I always try to bring up to to a lot of people playing the game. When you see more advanced aircraft, um, you have you have crew members that are really feeding information rather than being a a a small element as just a gunner or something like that. Well, something else that that helped me was uh, when I went through Top Gun as a student. My pilot and I said, "Look, we will be very candid." in our criticism of each other. And, and if you get criticized, don't be defensive, you know, don't make that your first response, listen. And so it helped me to realize, okay, what do I need to do to make this plane more lethal? Right. Not, you know, Hey, I was doing this. I was thinking that no, you know, and it, it just helped me become more professional. Well, that, that's one of the most interesting things I've tried to explain to people. That's a, a habit pattern you build from military aviation debriefing is to is to take the who out of it, doing everything by call signs and by flight positions, and that it isn't that you know bio made the mistake. It in this case is you know Hawk eight two opted to defend the wrong direction, and you go hmm, yeah. Well, there's two of you in this, so you're both equally guilty. <laughs> yeah, so. and when I talk to people about some of these things, and I'm talking about being an instructor. It sounds a little bit stiff when you say, you know, we didn't say I, we didn't say you. It sounds stiff and proper. But and I remind them, you know, you got five or six sweaty guys in flight suits and they just got out of jet fighters. So, you know, if you if it sounds stiff when I'm telling you right now, it was just the right level in that debrief room because 
look, we, we just got out of jet fighters. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's something that Brett and I have talked about. And, and it's kind of funny that uh, he has to endure debriefs after we'll play a game. Uh, because I'll sit there and, I, and I'll try to figure out, not just for the game designer side, but just to get better at the game. Uh, sit there and I'm like, well, what did I do wrong? What did he do wrong? And I know, Brett, you probably feel bad when I throw spears at you every once in a while. No, like, I insist <laughs> on those. I'm trained that way, too. Every, exactly. After action review, right? Every time. So Yeah, all, all the... Uh, eye-poking ranger uh, after action reviews. Brett, that's awesome. I mean, I'm, I know that uh, American military forces are incredibly professional, regardless, land, sea, and air. So I'm glad to hear you say that, uh, or just confirm that you guys did that. Yeah, I think we're probably far more similar than we are different. I mean, we had different operations, but I think that mentality and that, uh, that level of professionalism and the, uh, uh, urgency to get better and learn lessons from, you know, even, even in combat operations, you know, there were, that was, that kind of review happened. It was, I mean, it's, I would expect that that's pretty much done at this level everywhere. You know where I found, I learned that I, uh, I spent 10 years in Naval aviation at Miramar. And then I went to the joint staff in the Pentagon and, uh, this was in 1990 and the joint staff, I, I mean, I didn't know too much about it, but the other people around me, there, there was a ranger guy there. There was a, uh, I'm not going to use his name because I don't want him to sneak up into my house right now. And, but uh, there was, there was a submarine guy. There were, you know, Air Force, and everybody had the level of professionalism and enthusiasm uh, that I felt uh, for my job for flying, you know, F-14s. And I'm going like, okay, okay, <laughs> you know, it's not only me. Everybody's like that. Or, all, you know, almost many people are. Like that. A lot of them are. And that's that's the great thing, I think, when you um, can work in environments like that. It's, it's kind of funny that no matter what your service uh, baggage is, as I always call it, like you get a room full of aviators, you get the Air Force, you get the Marines, the Navy, and you get Army uh, aviators in there. And everyone's going to have a different perspective of why it needs to be done. But people are generally to an individual, such great professionals, um, that you can sit there and have knockdown, drag out fights about things. And and I'm sure it's kind of funny for some of the listeners who haven't been in the military to understand this, that, that there were times we would go to close air support doctrine meetings and we would be yelling at each other across the room. And then we'd go drink beer right afterwards and have a great time standing around the Oak Club telling, telling lies about what we really did. Yeah. Yep. That was a great environment. I keep bugging Doug to do a terrain walk with me over a game. That's what we call it in the Army. I think some folks might call it like a staff ride or whatever, where, uh, you know, basically play each segment of the battle, but then stop and then, you know, reset and call out mistakes. And why'd you do that? I I learned that way, I think. (laughs) And uh, I have a lot to learn still, even in this game. So uh, I I notice when I play with Doug, he has a really good sense of where things are going to be many steps ahead and where they're going. And, and I don't have that yet, but I think I could learn that if I had a few, not just a few more reps in the game, which I'm getting, but maybe some opportunities to do some stepwise critique like that. I uh, think that, I think that would be a great idea. Yeah. It's, it's Doug, one of the, sorry to, sorry to <laughs> sign you up for that, Doug. Yeah. Thanks for volunteering me for that. You know, <laughs> What's the Navy late, stand for? Never again, volunteer yourself. <laughs> yeah. Later in my career, when I was, uh, when I was a more senior guy and I was practicing to be a uh, air wing strike leader, which was, which was very demanding when I did it in, in uh, 1996 and uh, in 97. And I see these, uh, these lieutenants that are, that have come up in the Tomcat and the Hornet and they are, uh, you know, they're just like fish in water. And I, 
I'd been out of the cockpit for a few years, so I'm trying to pick up a lot of stuff. It was hard for me, but we went and flew a, f- we flew a mission and w- it didn't go very well. And we came back and I'm going, I'd like to fly that again one more time. And the, whoever I was talking to, the strike leader trainer goes, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> you don't know. That's it. You do it once and we move on to something else. I go, man, I'd like to do one right. You know? So. Oh yeah. I, I, that, I think that summarizes most of my naval aviation career of, you know, can I please have a do over for those Kosovo yeah. combat missions? You know, yeah. uh, I might've <laughs> actually set the laser codes correctly. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing about aviation and professional military things. And I think it's, it's bled over into how, Brett and and I and Chris, all being you know former uh, military uh, guys, have have really looked at at this game of pushing little plastic airplanes around. But it's a desire to figure to figure it out and sit there and go, I'm going to practice it enough until I get good at this, and I'm tired of sucking at it, so I'm going to keep beating my head against the wall. Um, but there's something to be said for for everyone who's out there that. Um, they either are having a hard time grasping particulars of a, a specific movement rule or how an airplane maneuvers or, okay, how, how do I how do I simulate a low yo-yo or a high yo-yo, any one of these maneuvers, and, and why would I want to do that? Why don't I just fly at the enemy guns blazing? Um, one of the things that, that Brett and I have realized is if you, if you practice it out, if you do that staff ride in a sense and move the models and go, huh, that got me to a really disadvantaged position, I don't want to do that again, go back, restart it, and go, oh, okay, now I understand why I move more or less speed up slow down um things like that well once you start to get the uh once you start to see a low yo-yo high yo-yo displacement roll you know all these various things and you just start to instinctively see them then you're in for fun because it's like ah now you're speaking the language well so that's that takes me right into that that whole piece about seeing a few moves ahead. And, and, you know, I had some great instructors that uh, were former Top Gun instructors that were the kind of guys that would debrief you in the middle of a dogfight on what you were going to do next before you even knew that you were going to maneuver in that direction. Um, but, but there's an element to having seen things and to be so comfortable with it that you you know how to your, your situational awareness tells you what the next right response is so let's let's talk a little bit about that where there were times that you and your pilot were, were so aligned you could easily figure out i know what his response is going to be in this multi-plane environment i can either keep my mouth shut or i'm going to say something well one of the one of the worst times i did it was or excuse me one of the worst times that happened to me was when i was in a uh, I think it was an eight versus unknown or at least a four versus unknown on the Yuma tax range. And so everybody, every plane has a pod and you can see exactly how far apart they are uh, foot to foot uh, or down to one foot accuracy. And I'm watching my pilot and I can see that he's pursuing And I'm in the back seat of an F5F and I can see he's pursuing a guy who's at, you know, 11 o'clock slightly high. And I look over to the right and there's a Hornet right next to us. And I don't think he saw us because he was in a left turn and he was coming right over the top of us. And I just knew my pilot was going to climb to pursue the guy he was after. And I, I just got the words out, don't climb, but it didn't matter. He had already pulled the Hornet went over the top of us. And so we went, when we went to the debrief, I was sitting, I sat myself at the console and you could, select two airplanes and show their relative separation and i remember the moment that happened i had my plane and that hornet and and we missed each other by 
I think it was 60 feet. Yeah, yeah. That's and these, that's where our pods were. And I don't remember which, you know, they could have been on opposite wings or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, but another time I was flying with uh, a pilot. This was in an F-14. And we were in, we ended up being in a 1V5. And it was, it was one of the, my most memorable flights of my entire career. And we were very well in tuned and I was on my game and, you know, he was chasing it. He would chase one guy at a time, call the shot, pick another guy. And I'm watching these people, these, uh, F4s, we were fighting one, uh, five F4s and I'm watching the F4s, you know, start to become a threat. I tell them, you know, 90 degrees to go or whatever. And then I say, you know, come hard right now. So he come off, neutralize that threat and get back to pursue his guy. And I just felt like that one particular engagement, uh, we worked really well together. Yeah. When you have that kind of multi bogey engagement, uh, with a pilot and you're synced up like that, it's, it's pretty impressive. I was fortunate enough to do some air combat tactics instructor quals when I was a weapons school instructor with some amazing pilots on the West coast. And there were a couple guys that I synced up that well with and, you know, I, I was really surprised because we used to fly mixed instructor student uh, crews a lot of times during those certs. And so it was nice to go out there with a, a highly uh, qualified young pilot and sync up that fast and, and do that in a multi bogey environment. He would come off from fighting the guy he'd just shot. You would say, you know, threat lift vector 90. He would turn, you know, hard left into that guy, shoot him and and you'd go on to fighting the next guys. And, and the language I was uh, I was telling a guy a little earlier today some of the uh, language like you just said threat lift victor 90 you know it may sound awkward to somebody who's listening but when you live in that environment that's the language you speak and your brain you know it just goes right into your brain and you just react and uh, it's just it's great to to operate at that level in that environment you know if if that's what you've sought which is that's what i sought in my life and and to be at that level i was just going like this is awesome <laughs> well you know the one of the interesting things and and brett and i've talked about it because everybody every service has this in in various uh various different disciplines but voice inflection always means something and it's no different whether you're doing a ground operation at as a ranger whether you're an aviator whether you're on the the bridge of a ship voice inflection means everything and it's so funny how um, you'll get people who will be thoroughly thoroughly deadpan until something really important happens and it then they sound like they're a jack russell terrier but it's because they've learned that 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 voice inflection is what drives other people to action <laughs> oh yeah yep i i flew the guy who was uh an excellent pilot but he was always very calm on the radio and and the f-14 pilot doesn't speak on the radio very much but we were in a 2v unknown and an f-16 basically uh snuck snuck in on us we we had not tracked him and then um we saw him as he passed our wing line. And so we're engaged with an F-16. And he just comes up on the radio, you know, Lumpy's engaged, F-16. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no big deal. By the way, it's an F-16 in the middle of everything. And we're all like, oh, six and a half Gs, which was our G limit at the time, you know. And man. Well, you know. That, that's... And then uh, he fought it. Fought it to a neutral engagement, then our women came in and shot it. <laughs> nice. Well, well, I was about to say, and that's always the uh, the funny thing that, that guys don't talk about is sometimes the purpose of you being out there is to die in as loud and a glorious military manner. So everybody else knows where the bandit is. <laughs> so even uh, if you get called out, they now know where the bad guys are. Oh, I, f I flew the guy who did that too. He was a, uh, he was a phantom. This was when he was in phantoms and uh, 
he said he was it was when uh fan when the hornet was brand new and a bunch of phantoms were fighting a bunch of hornets and everybody was being real cagey nobody wanted to engage because you know the hornets didn't want to get risk being shot yeah by except the I should, yeah no one wants to get beat by a phantom come on <laughs> yeah, and then the phantom guys didn't want to give the hornets anything so this guy goes okay this is boring so he flew to the middle of it lit his burners and just pulled up into the vertical <laughs> nice (laughs) and he said all of a sudden he was the hornet you know he just like you said he just got schwacked yeah everybody uh, rolled in on him at that point yeah but then all the hornets you know they unmasked themselves and then all the phantoms all go okay ha yeah (laughs) so it worked yeah we used to have very similar things with the f5s that uh in wti one of the interesting things is as you do a large number of these large air-to-air events and it, it kind of reflects about how some of the blood red skies games go there's there's always a little bit of maneuver counter maneuver nobody wants to really anchor down into that engagement and then finally somebody says screw it i don't care i'm i'm going to tie down these two f5s that are trying to run away because at least if i do that it will start the feeding frenzy and then everybody else will be in the fight and so so that guy usually gets called out because he usually gets drugged back into the ambush with another two or three uh, f5s um but it at least like you said unmasks everybody to get engaged Man, those were great, great days. Yeah, yeah. Usually it was me that was the idiot that was chasing them down at low altitude somewhere south of the of border road, which if people haven't flown there is south of the Mexican border. So if you're south of border road, you're definitely in Mexico at that point chasing an F five. But that's all right. <laughs> as as long as they don't catch you. Yeah, exactly. Well and I you know, one of the the things that I've taken most into into looking at, at Blood Red Skies and some of these other air combat games is is kind of one of the understandings of of battle space awareness and that, you know, people always think about dogfights and you're just out there, you're fighting this other airplane, but like you allude to a lot of times, there's there's so much a, a requirement of, I don't want to go over there because I'm having a dogfight with a Messerschmitt right now, but there's flak over there and I don't want to get shot at. <laughs> I only need one guy trying to kill me, not all the other guys that are on the ground. And so... Yeah, and, and for us, it was, you know, staying in the training area or whatever, but in the real world, it's going to be, you know, avoiding SAM sites or... You know, whatever. Right. Well, I'm sure on deployments you had uh, a number of real-world intercepts where all of a sudden you have real-world constraints. And so you say, I cannot drive straight at this aircraft I need to intercept. I need to stay away from this political border or this yep. merchant yep. ship that's out there. I don't want to overfly them. You know, And and, and some of those considerations are things that, that we don't always think about in, in a lot of board games because people tend to just stack up a bunch of miniatures, put them, you know, point them up at another guy's miniatures and uh, and go try to try to win the game. <laughs> which you know that's one way to do it yeah well it's it, it's all the things that that brett laughs at me for trying to to make somewhat more realistic scenarios because because uh, there's always things that we've added in and instead of just going out there and seeing who's got the uh the best uh six spitfires and who can beat up the messerschmitts but it's one of those things well cool <sighs> well glad to talk a lot of this uh this air combat stuff i did want to kind of um you know, kind of bring it full circle back around a little bit on the career side because you know once again a lot of the stuff that that people talk about in in aviation and aviation gaming is always about the dogfight and not about all the other stuff that goes on and all the difficulties of naval aviation where you're managing crews against missions you're managing broken airplanes and you're like well 403 really is kind of a hanger queen and sure 403 is up but you know 403 was down for a six months <laughs> who wants to take 403 today we're not going to put that with the new guy you know and, and matching aircraft to to this the pilots and, and rios that you had you know talk a little bit about that 
Doug, first off, if you want to make your games realistic, I think you ought to make all the guys do a staff tour. So I don't know how you can do that, but yeah, you know, make exactly. them write, <laughs> write papers or something. That's, but, that's really all you do in aviation anyway. You, it really isn't about the flying. It's all the other busy work we do. <laughs> no, the cool. Later in my career, I was a, the XO and CO of an F-14 squadron. And in, in Navy squadrons, the XO fleets up to be the CO, uh, the executive officer, and then you become the commanding officer, CO. And it is, uh, it's, it's cool. Like, I guess like several other things I've said tonight, once you're in that position and you're doing that, you start to get a sense of who you want, who you want to fly together, you know, which pilots in Rio's and you, it just becomes, you know, like, um, I don't know, a natural thing. I guess humans naturally do that. They start organizing and evaluating and judging, and you say, okay, you know, this plane's been a problem. Give it to uh, so-and-so and, and uh, let this person take the good airplane because it's got fewer problems and they can't handle problems or whatever. And then, I mean, uh, I don't want anybody to think that, that we uh, accepted unqualified or incapable pilots and Rios because we did have standards. And if someone was having uh, trouble making a standard, then, you know, we'd work with them and help them get up to speed. But, um, but still, even within a, a very capable group, you do, as you said, you've got people that are, are better and uh, have more experience or different skills, to, you know, to solve problems. Um, yeah, it's just uh, managing a fighter squadron and managing people and then trying to be a warfare specialist and everything. It is, uh, you know, it's kind of challenging, but also I look at my buddies who uh, who stayed in and went on and became, you know, captains and admirals and stuff, and and they handled it very well. You know, for me, it was a full-time job. Uh, I enjoyed it. I was very honored, uh, but but some guys just seemed like to just glide through it, you know. Yeah, I, I know I barely survived my short stint as an XO, so I thankfully was never a squadron commander. I can only imagine how horrible marine aviation would be today if <laughs> if they'd given me command of a squadron. <laughs> the, the horrible habit patterns that would have been induced into the marine F eighteen community. But uh, it, you know, do you Brett, think they would they would start lectures with your picture? They <laughs> oh oh, I can I can only imagine what horrible things would happen now. I, I laugh because there's there's so many of the guys that were my peers or even some of them that were that were my proteges, and we've been talking. Recently recently about some things and I just laugh and I go guys I I couldn't have done it I'm glad you all did I couldn't have put up with some of the just the how any system is it doesn't matter whether you're in business the military industry there's always a, a sense of paying your dues and and you have to do some things that are sometimes no fun to to progress on to the next job uh, and I I certainly was not in the Marine Corps for that <laughs> that was well my squadron command was enough for me so I'll just say yeah, that yeah I absolutely. mean I look at after my experience as squadron commander I look at my friends that commanded nuclear carriers and I go like how did you do that yeah they yeah. go oh it's easy you got to trust your people and all that. I'm going like oh god <laughs> Colonel burn the ships, Glover. Yeah, pretty well. Pretty much that. Uh, I pretty much did that as a major, so I probably would have done that as a uh, as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. So, oh man, <laughs> I had I. You know uh, what Brett and I have talked about it a couple times, having that that desire to see the best of your people, but also realizing that people perform their best sometimes under a little bit of artificially induced stress. Uh, so, so I. I think there's probably more than uh, one or two uh, marine aviators and, and marine wizards out there that uh, that know that I turned up the heat a little artificially on them. <laughs> Whoa. 
Brett, did you have any uh, any last minute questions before we wrap things up tonight? No, I just appreciate uh, getting to listen in on the conversation and you know trying to translate this notion of situational awareness into the tabletop too. I, I think a lot of it you know, can actually translate, and some of the things you talked about, I lo- it's it's super interesting, of course, uh, talking about actual you know engagements and stuff with the F fourteen, and then trying to tie some of the maybe conceptual things back to how we might better play too. I like it. Absolutely. Thanks, Brett. Hey, hey, Doug, you know, one thing I want to say is a lot of guys, when I talk to them about F-14s, they want to hear about the Phoenix. Ah, <laughs> the, uh, the mighty Phoenix. <laughs> and the interesting thing was, and I, you notice I haven't talked about it at all tonight. We, Thank you. <laughs> we uh, reserved the Phoenix for defending the carrier strike group until uh, around 1987, 88. And by that time, uh, we were facing AA-10s, and the Navy planners and leaders were going, we need to use the Phoenix in a tactical environment. <laughs> right. And so we would we would train to carry one or two. I mean, we didn't carry six and, and didn't even carry four, but we trained to carry one or two Phoenix uh, in a tactical environment, and we even trained with them in, in our ACM training programs. And it was... Uh, and by this time, also we had the AIM fifty four Charlie, so it was uh, a pretty, it was a capable missile. Uh, it had a, you know, some weaknesses, but it also had a, you know, hundred and whatever, hundred thirty pound warhead. Right, <laughs> that, that makes up for some that, weaknesses. That, yeah, I was about to say that solves a lot of problems there with the large blast radius. <laughs> so, so that the Phoenix was, uh, you know, and then after that, the F fourteen went on for another uh, eighteen to twenty years until two thousand six, and the Phoenix was, you know, an integral part, especially after the Soviet Union collapsed and there was a reduced threat, not eliminated, but a reduced threat of a regimental uh, bomber raid. Oh, yeah. So we did we did use the Phoenix. Uh, it just it came on late in the tactical environment. Well, I think one of the toughest things for us as aviators, especially when you hop into a, either a video game or a board game that someone has made about aviation, is to take your knowledge of weapon systems and have to shelve it a little bit and say, I know how we used things and I know what we what we thought of these weapon systems. This is kind of an outsider's perspective. <laughs> and so I know for me, I've had to push the I believe button a few times and gone, okay, I know that's how you think the F-18 radar works. And I know that's what you think the AIM-120 does. It's not a laser beam. It's not not a wonder weapon. <laughs> That's know, good. And, and no, good. Go that. Good for you for uh, for doing that, for being in this environment, and you know, contributing uh, what you do contribute to to make it accessible to so many more people. Absolutely. So, and thanks for having me on tonight. I've uh, enjoyed talking to you, and I've enjoyed telling some stories. And uh, if you guys come up with more questions, you know, you can send them to me or or bring me back in a few months, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Always glad to uh, to talk tactics. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Bio. We really appreciate it. It's always good to talk. I mean, even with an F-14 guy, you know, I will lower myself to talk to a, oh, to a Tomcat guy. So, thank you so much. <laughs> no, it's, it's always that rivalry. It's kind of funny every time uh, every time we bring up uh, other platforms. So thanks for taking the time to talk to the Lead Pursuit podcast. We really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Bio's experiences as a Top Gun instructor in F-14 Rio, or even about the road to becoming a Top Gun instructor, check out his books at www.topgunbio.com, or head over to Amazon and search for Top Gun Days, his book about flying, teaching, and participating in the Hollywood blockbuster movie Top Gun.